I want to turn you this morning to John chapter 6. Of course, as you are students of the Word of God, you will remember that John chapter 6, of course, is where we find in John the feeding of the 5,000. We also find the great discourse on the bread of life. And these great teachings of our Lord, including the absolute sovereignty of God, that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. We find these things taking place, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day after the feeding of the 5,000. The Lord Jesus Christ had been on the eastern shore, probably somewhere near Bethsaida, when he fed the 5,000. Then he moved to the other side, of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a large lake, about six miles across. And as you uh, will remember from teaching in time past, the Hebrews called any large body of water a sea. We would have called it a big lake. And the Lord went over to the western side to Capernaum, a place where he'd actually, in a way, made his headquarters. The people would follow him there the next day they would make the trip around the lake and they would follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They would follow him to Capernaum. And <clears throat> what would take place there, that's where we read in John chapter 6 the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't come there because they wanted him. They came there because they wanted only what they thought he could do for them. When he fed the 5,000, they were assured in their minds that he was the Messiah, the promised Messiah. They even tried to take him by force and make him that kind of king they were looking for. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ would have nothing to do with it. And when they did... Multitude, a multitude of people went the next day, and it took something to get there, to Capernaum, where the Lord Jesus Christ had crossed the Sea of Galilee to that place. They went not because of him, but because of the bread, and because they thought, well, here is the Messiah that's going to deliver us from all this Roman oppression. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ would begin teaching them that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He began teaching them that he was the fulfillment of that type of manna in the Old Testament. They were looking for bread. He gives the discourse on the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Then the Lord Jesus Christ will ask a question, but that question will be asked only of his apostles and only after that whole crowd had left him because they realized he would not do what they wanted him to do and that he taught that salvation was in God's hands, totally, not their hands. And they were offended at the things that he taught them. I know, of course, over the years and by witness of other ministries that when the sovereign grace of God in salvation is proclaimed, when it's shown that God and man is not in control and that God is in complete control of salvation, that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, that salvation is of him and him alone, we also sometimes watch the crowds go away. We've seen that in various ministries where maybe a free will gospel has been proclaimed and then there may come a sovereign grace minister and that has happened in time past in various places and uh, it doesn't take very long for people to become offended at the truth of God's sovereign grace. So all this crowd, of course, would 
depart. They would leave the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus would ask his apostles an incredibly piercing question. In light of all those many who walked away from him that day in Capernaum, he would confront the twelve with this question. Will ye also go away? That morning, the synagogue, probably the streets of the town as well, were packed. They were packed with those who flocked to the Lord Jesus Christ. They listened to his teaching, and they rejected it. And by later that day, they turned from him. They went back to their homes. They went back to their former lives. They went back to their former way of thinking. Without Christ, without salvation, to live out their days until death would secure from them only the judgment to come. We have a solemn scene, of course, in John chapter 6. Those who had, in a sense, put their hand to the plow, had looked back, and they turned back. And they were not fit, of course, for the kingdom of God. What about the twelve? What about the apostles? They remained. Would they continue to remain? Would they stay when even greater difficulties would come? And as we know, even among them, there was one who would stay with them. But it would have been better for him had he not done so. And of course we know that's Judas Iscariot. But with one of the most important confessions in Scripture, Peter would reveal the reason why they would not leave the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Wednesday evening we dealt with the confession that was made at Caesarea Philippi where the Lord Jesus had taken his apostles. He asked them, of course, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said various ones, a prophet like Elijah and, uh, or Jeremiah and so forth. And he says, but whom do you say that I am? Peter, of course, answers, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. With all they'd experienced to that time, including all the difficulties that they had experienced, that's the reason they would stay. Would that be the reason they would stay? Well, we have the same confession made by Peter in regard to those true apostles also in our passage. So that's why we titled this message, The Searching Question. But let's read in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 71. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe that thou art, we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. It was a critical time. It was an incredibly critical situation that surrounds the asking of this question. The crowd of disciples, those who had attached themselves to Christ and the twelve, they'd done so for all the wrong reasons. They had not counted the cost of true discipleship. They'd not reckoned upon 
what it could really mean to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the events of this chapter make it all too clear that far more was involved than they anticipated. They were looking for him to provide them with ease and plenty and deliverance from their foreign occupiers. They were looking for him to be the kind of Messiah they were hoping for. They would have him for what he could do for them. If he would do for them what they wanted, secure their material wants, and give them free bread. In verse 26 of this chapter, he says to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. They would even ask him to give them another miracle. What greater miracle could they ask for than taking a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feeding 5,000 from it. They wanted their lives made easier and thought he could do so. They would have even bowed the knee to him as king if he would use that power to overthrow the Romans and bring that materialistic messianic kingdom they wrongly expected to come. They wouldn't hear those things. Instead, they would hear him teach that he, not physical bread, that he, and not manna as had been given of old in the days of Moses and had been physically supplied to the fathers, but that he himself was the only bread that could give eternal life. That's where we have the great discourse in chapter 6, verses 48 through 51 of John chapter 6. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is that bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. They would not receive his words. They would not receive the truth that he proclaimed. That only those have eternal life who eat his flesh and drink his blood. Of course, the Jews were strict literalists. They could not comprehend the spiritual meaning of his words, even though he would make it very clear that he wasn't speaking in crass materialistic terms. He was speaking spiritual language. Again, as in verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Or as in verse 47, Verily, verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Or as in verses 53 through 55, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And in verse 58, This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Then he makes it very clear in verse 63, it is the spirit 
that quickeneth gives life. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, they never understood something. They thought that their bondage was Rome. That it was Rome that brought their bondage. They never understood their real bondage. That the real bondage was not the Roman yoke, but their enslavement to sin. Unless men comprehend that, they're not going to receive the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not going to comprehend and understand what he means. Unless one comes to recognize that they're under the power of sin and that horrendous thing, for there's nothing more evil in this universe than sin against the living God. It is the most serious matter there is. But too few are brought under a work that causes them to see that and to recognize their sins have separated between them and their God. And they're enslaved to sin. It rules them. They didn't comprehend that. They thought their bondage was because of the things happening to them in this world. They thought freedom from foreign powers was what Messiah would bring when he would come. Not reconciliation to God through the death of a cross. They never did come knowing who he was and what he came to do. They never were brought to cry in some way, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Instead, they would reject his word in unbelief. He had taught them, of course. He knew that. He knew they were all going to go away. Then he says, in John 6, verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That offended them, of course. And they would reject him in unbelief. As in verse 60, Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? That's in regard to all of his teaching sovereignty of God, him as the bread of life, and uh, not being given to them to come to Christ. They would go back. They would never again walk with him, as in verses 64 through 66. There are some of you that believe not for Jesus knew from the beginning, who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. It was an incredibly critical time when now the Lord Jesus Christ had been rejected in Galilee just as he had been formerly rejected in Judea. And together, the twelve would be confronted with this searching question. Will ye also go away? You have to comprehend that in the context of what had taken place. Will ye also go away? You have to think of the scene with those twelve, what they experienced that day in Capernaum. In the morning, at the dawning of the day, in the morning, the multitudes that had been with the Lord Jesus Christ 
just the night before in the wilderness on the other side. They'd followed him back to Capernaum. They came enthusiastically to him. It was something to go through the marshes and the places they had to walk around that lake to get to him. They filled the streets and the towns. My, there's no mega church that could boast more probably than what they had then. As far as numbers. They filled the synagogue to overflowing. But then, the people began to hear what he was really saying. They began to hear what he was really teaching. And the terms that they must meet, if truly, they would be his. They didn't like that. They didn't want it. And they rejected what they heard. They walked away from him and went back. All that whole crowd. All that vast multitude that filled the streets of Capernaum. All those who had been the recipients of an incredible miracle. That's what brought them. They wanted what he could do for them. They didn't want him. The twelve then probably huddled together we can only imagine what must have gone through their minds. There they were. There that whole multitude had gone away and gone back. They must have been downcast. Wondering what happened. What happened? They approached the Lord Jesus and they hear his piercing question. Will you also go away? They'd heard his sermon as well. They saw the opposing reaction of the Jews and now no doubt in dismay they watched many of his professed disciples who were so enthusiastic in the morning abandon Christ before the evening falls. There's not a true man of God called of him pastoring a congregation of people who has not in the course of that ministry witnessed those who have come and been so excited. So excited. Oh, here's where the truth is. Here we hear the word of God. Here's reality that we haven't found anywhere else. Sometimes it doesn't take very long for that to change. You see, because there was never a real work of grace. A real work of God's salvation. And bringing them as needy sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. To stack arms as it were. And surrender to him. And be his alone. And learn what it means to take up the cross themselves daily to follow him. You see men want what they can get. They form their own minds of what that is. Oft times and that's what happened. With these, of course, as we see here. Their crisis came. The crisis of the twelve. They stand at the most critical period of their own discipleship. Because not only did they see the crowd desert the Lord Jesus Christ. But there must have been some sense, maybe very strongly, 
as did immediately begin to happen, that the opposition was going to get worse, that it was going to mount, that it could even be deadly. And he brings those words, that searching question, will ye also go away? What would keep them? What would keep them when everything by sight looked like failure? What would keep them when suddenly a massive crowd that appeared so enthusiastic turned their back and walked away from him? What would keep them? You know, there are sometimes there are those who will make a profession of faith because others do. Or because there's an emotional atmosphere and something moves them emotionally to make some kind of profession of faith. I often wonder about that. When I was a boy, I used to sit in the balcony at Waltham Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I had a little friend. And when I heard the gospel, I mean heard it inwardly, when I heard what had been proclaimed many, many times before but didn't hear it until that day, and after that service I found my way to the pastor and said, I want to follow Christ. I want to belong to him. And that little fellow went right with me. He said, yeah, me too. I don't even remember his name. It's been so long ago. I am 76. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know what happened to him. Don't know if it was real or if it was just because I wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to be baptized and follow him. I had come to believe. I had come to trust him and look to him alone. I didn't know a whole lot. I knew one thing. I was a sinner. I knew that when I was a boy. I was a sinner. And judgment was real. It became so vivid with me in my mind. And I heard that God gave his son to save sinners like me. And calls to believe him. Not to work. Not to bring anything but to believe him for the wondrous gift he gave of his son and his salvation. But there are many things that are big sometimes tend to keep going big. Sometimes there's a lot of excitement that can take place. I can remember when we were in the former church before we came here and I was I was laboring. I labored in it. I didn't know the grace of God until a pastor named Roger Lackey had come and began teaching and proclaiming the grace of God. I remember the first sermon he preached because we were always, oh, what we're doing, what we can do, what we're accomplishing. And Roger got up and began preaching that there is a sovereign Lord enthroned over all things. I'd never heard the Lord Jesus exalted, magnified that way. It was always what we did. He began proclaiming an enthroned, sovereign Lord. Do you remember that message? The first message he proclaimed. And people got excited. They got excited. Until they really later began hearing what he was proclaiming. Then they began like these to go away. What would keep these apostles of the Lord? What did they have that would cause them to stay when everything looked like it was completely now failing? What would cause them to stay? Well, the answer is found in verses 68 and 69 of John chapter 6. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. We have, if you please, here one of the most dramatic moments recorded in the Gospels. Peter, speaking, obviously on behalf of the apostolic band, we believe, Peter, without any hesitancy, no hesitancy whatsoever, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art Christ, that Christ, the Son of the living God. Those words that offended the crowd, those words when the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the bread that you must have. I am the bread that you must eat if you would have eternal life. I personally am that bread. They didn't like that. But Peter and the apostles knew what he was saying. Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. It's an answer that connects also immediately with the heart of every truly begotten of God soul. Everyone who's born of God. Everyone who's truly regenerated immediately will have that response. Peter addresses Jesus as Lord. That's always proper. We address him as Lord. So Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. In the context, this has to have its highest meaning when he addresses Jesus Christ as Lord. Sometimes it may apply to a polite address or an address to a dignitary, but often in Scripture, it's the address that's given to deity. Just as Thomas after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Thomas not having been with those disciples the week before, saying, I won't believe unless I see the print of the nails, and so forth, and the Lord Jesus Christ said, go ahead, Thomas, when he meets with them that time, thrust your hands into my side. Look at my hands. Be not faithless, but believing. You remember his confession. My Lord and my God. A great confession, of course. Paul would write to the Corinthians, say there's lords many, there are gods many, talking about the heathen and pagan lords and gods, but to us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Of course, he was signifying the deity of the Lord Jesus. That's found in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, by the way. And of course, everyone in whom God does a work, what is their confession? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. That signifies he is Lord, sovereign of all. He is God. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Truly, knowing, believing, that Jesus Christ is Lord indeed. A confession that both sinner and saints will make at the consummation of all things, both saved and lost, to the glory of God the Father, that Jesus Christ is Lord. There was not even the thought of going anywhere else. They didn't even entertain a brief thought of going anywhere else. 
He is rejected. Trouble is coming. Hard things are ahead. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, they showed that they had truly, indeed, heard the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts. They correctly understood the meaning of his words. They knew what it meant when he says in verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And then the Lord Jesus Christ is confessed by Peter as the Messiah, the Christ. Thou art that Christ. No doubt in his mind or in his heart. Here is the one the prophets of old declared would come. Here's the one beginning in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The prophecy God himself gave to the old serpent expanded, multiplied over and over hundreds of times in different ways. This is he. Thou art that Christ. The one the prophets declared would come. The very divine son of the living God. There's no doubt. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Well, there's a tremendous application to be drawn from this revealing answer of Peter. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And answer that if that is in one's heart, whatever appearances come, they will remain steadfast. The basis of this colossal application is to be found in the tense of the words Translated in verse 69, believe and sure. Those verbs. Greek scholars show that both of these words are in the perfect tense. That means present and continuing action. Not something that took place in the past. There's a kind of faith that's a natural kind of faith that men can have that can go, that can be passed. We read of that. There were those, of course, in John chapter 2 who saw the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw those miracles, and the Scripture says they believed. It's not that they heard with the hearing of faith. Men always want to see something. I saw a promo for something about uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ, some kind of movie or something. I don't watch those things, but... I said, here they had a Bible in one part of it. And they were showing something that's supposed to be coming about Christ in another part. And the message was, well, you know, you can read it, but we're going to make it come alive. As if that movie would do what this book God gave can't do. I was astounded to hear that. Because it still remains that faith cometh how? By hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And God chose a method to save his believing people. What is it? Preaching. After that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them to believe. I'll guarantee you there are people that will look that, be emotionally moved, and probably make some kind of profession in their own minds who've never heard the gospel and still haven't. 
I'll tell you what, the adversary is very subtle, and he's real. We don't move from God's method. We don't move from what he's taught us in his word. We stay firm in the way he has appointed, because everything else falls under satanic deception. As emotional as men may think of it, here is where the life is. Here in God's truth. And here in this word, believe is in the perfect tense. He continues to believe, not just beginning. Here, sure is in the perfect tense. He continues to believe, not something that simply took place in the past. Peter thus means we have come to believe and we continue to believe. And all of this that's happened, it has not in the least changed our faith, our trust in the living Lord. We've come to be completely convinced and we're just as convinced as ever. No one who has truly come to hear in their soul and know the meaning of and believe Christ's life-giving words will ever forsake him. They might have hard things happen. How many have? Sometimes God takes a loved one. There are times when we don't understand it. There are times when a Job... Sometimes God will even take somebody's child or children. And they may be stumped up for a while and maybe it's difficult for them. But if they truly heard the saving gospel of the Son of God, they still believe. They still look to Him. They still trust in Him. When one truly comes to know the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, they won't depart from Him. There may be times when they can be stumped up for a while. But the truth is in them, down deep in their soul, deep in their heart. They're sometimes children. Children, God might do a real work in them. And circumstances will come along where for a time things are different. They may not be taught. But still down deep in their soul, they know God is and they know who Christ is. And they'll come back. When one truly comes to know him, no one else and nothing else can truly satisfy them apart from him. They will have the cry of the psalmist, Thou, O God. The one I want. My heart panteth after thee, O God. That ever so many profess to know him, and eventually depart from him and his truth. And this indeed may be a great trial to those who truly hear and believe the word of God. But it will not be a cause of their leaving him. This great application is fully attested to in the doctrinal teaching of the New Testament. Saving faith, faith that truly lays hold of Christ is who he is and accepts the meaning of his cross, knowing no other way. Because he died for my sins, that's the only reason I'm saved. Surrendering self to be his and to be his alone, that's not the product of fallen human will. That's distinctly the gift of God. If you and I possess this faith, it's not produced by us. 
It is God's gift. We had no ability to lay hold of the truth because we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And it's God who gives life. And when he gives life, it comes with that faith that knows his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone is Lord and Savior. And if God by grace begins this work in you, by grace and grace alone, he continues that work. Just as the Apostle Paul it's always been the lot of God's people to suffer in this world. And if they truly walk with Christ to come under forms of persecution in one way or another. It was so with the Philippians. Paul, of course, preached Christ to them. They came to know the Son of God. They came under suffering. He said, it's given unto you not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake, he tells them. But they didn't budge. They didn't move. Why? Not by their ability. He writes in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good place for blessed assurance? That God who begins the work continues the work? Great persecution would come to those to whom Peter wrote. They rejoiced in Christ. They rejoiced in him. They rejoiced in the glory of salvation. That their inheritance was not earthly. Their inheritance was heavenly. And we all laid up for them in glory. With the Lord himself. And he says to them. Though. They're suffering much. Though. Now for a season if need be. You're in heaviness through manifold temptations. That's various types of sufferings that came to them severe sufferings he said you're kept by the power of God unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time isn't that our hope in our God in his keeping us not in our ability the Lord Jesus says in this time at Capernaum the day after the feeding of the 5,000 in the midst of the multitude all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which you hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Then it is a certainty that everyone who possesses this genuine faith in Christ will overcome the world. With all of its snares and enticements and will arrive safe at the day of Jesus Christ. Why so? Because we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who guides. Then we can say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a tremendous psalm? That's a good psalm <laughs> to begin pondering, isn't it, this first day of 2023? As we consider the faith that shall overcome the faith that shall continue in the word of Christ, the faith that will not depart from him. Well, we have to leave it with this note as we conclude this message. We learn from the last two verses in John chapter 6 that even among the small company of apostles, there was one who did not possess that faith. There was one who did not have that kind of faith. There was one who loved the world still above the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one who would eventually not only depart from him, but betray him. That's solemn, of course, to think about. 
We think of the awful reality of, of those in Scripture like one Demas. You remember Paul had to write about in the final epistle he would write. Evidently, and we know from Scripture, he was with Paul, he labored with Paul, he went with Paul. Then at the last, in Paul's last days, Demas hath forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. That's where his heart was. That's where his heart was all the time. Judas was with the apostolic band. But where was his heart? His heart was going after what he had in this world, what he could gain in this world, what he could get in this world. It didn't take a whole lot of money for him to betray his Lord. That's a sobering and a fearful fact. You might sometimes be made by your own struggle with sin and the world which stands in opposition to Christ. You might be able or have been brought to the place kind of like the apostles when the Lord Jesus began teaching them in the upper chamber that one would indeed betray him. The response of the eleven was, Lord, is it I? That can happen. We don't trust ourselves. We trust him and him only. Still, that was a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, is it I? It's interesting when you read, Judas didn't say that when he chimed in last. He said, Master, is it I? If you're a fearful saint, but he is your Lord indeed, he is also your Savior. Trust him. Not your faith. Trust him. Trust him. Not your repentance. Trust him. Trust him to keep you. Not your own ability. Trust him. For once you've tasted and found that the Lord is gracious, he will not let you go. Isn't that good? He keeps his own. And every one of them shall show up with him at his day when he comes. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.